Lots to talk about today. Uh, the first hour and a half or so basically on the Brexit and what that means to everybody and uh, including tomorrow. What does it mean for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday as we move forward? Uh, and I must admit, I w- I'm completely surprised. I did not think it would end up this way. I, everybody knew it was close. I mean, that was no, uh, certainly no secret. Uh, but usually uh, in something like this, something so large, uh, change is difficult for people. So they have a, te- a tendency to go towards the status quo. Uh, clearly not the, uh, the case uh, last night as uh, the United Kingdom is going its separate way from the European Union. Uh, 52% wanting to leave. Prime Minister David Cameron is stepping down. He, of course, uh, started all of this uh, by putting the question forward, which a lot of people now are, are, are debating the advantages of having a referendum. To talk more about all of this, Paul Webster Harris with us, former British diplomat, now teaches international relations at Boston University and is, and is with us now. Good afternoon, Paul. How are you today? Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Thank you very much for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this. Your thoughts? Are you surprised? I was surprised. I mean, most people thought it would be close. Uh, I think the country voted in, in very different ways with different considerations. London... Uh, as you know, Scotland, Northern Ireland voted to remain. Middle England, Northern England, and Wales, perhaps most surprisingly, uh, voted to leave. So we have a, a disunited kingdom, unfortunately. And it is a leap into the unknown. I think, as you said in your introduction, the British voter tends to vote relatively conservatively and is suspicious of change, but change is now what awaits us. Is this more, is this, or do you think this was more about a disunited uh, kingdom as opposed to the uh, European Union? I think the benefits of the European Union have not been projected as well to the current generation, you know, in 2016 as, as they were when we joined. I've been a diplomat for 30 years, and all that time we've been you know, a member of the EU, and it's affected every aspect of our diplomacy, let alone aspects of ordinary life, like agriculture, fisheries, and so on. I I think a lot of people felt it's perhaps run out of steam, and if you add on to that the immigration issue, where people have felt really relatively recently that the EU has been imposing uh, a level of immigration which some have felt is, is not acceptable. Why do you think there is such a divide in the UK? People look at the issue you know, from different points of view. In London, it's a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, you can see the benefits of diversity. A lot of French, Spanish, Polish and others actually, of course, live and work there. So it is a very diverse city, and they recognize that London has established its position Uh, due at least in part to being receptive to internationalism, to the the EU. Other parts of England uh, see the EU as more remote and not obviously bringing them benefits. A lot of countries have a lot of cities in other parts of England have had to receive immigrants, perhaps they thought which, which was excessive, and they perhaps are complacent enough to think that there's an alternative where uh, those parts of the country can do better. Wales, I think, is, is unusual because Wales uh, is uh, a region of the country where the Labour Party traditionally does very well. It did pretty well in 2015 in the election. Labour 
has on the whole been substantially for Remain, and yet Wales has voted to leave. So there will be a lot of pondering, a lot of uh, heart-searching as to why people voted the way they did. How do you think Britain is feeling today? I think there will be a big sense of shock. Uh, some will be relieved. I mean, it's, we shouldn't underestimate that some people will feel elated and that there is a new path which the country can take. Others will feel this is a leap into the unknown. The pound is you know, down considerably. So Brits leaving for overseas climates to escape the weather will be quite a lot poorer. Uh, and that's, uh, of course, an immediate effect. Uh, and the politics is going to be messy for the next few months. David Cameron said he's quitting and there will be a process over the next three or four months to elect a new leader by the conference of the Conservative Party in October. So a lot of uncertainty, a lot of politicians rethinking their stances, and it's difficult to predict uh, where it will go. The negotiations themselves, of course, will be long and hard and very complicated, and the rest of the EU will not be in a mood to give the UK an easy pass, to give them obvious benefits mm. of leaving, because that would encourage other countries. Talk about David Cameron's role in all of this. And were people uh, as anti-David Cameron as they were EU? No, I don't think so. David Cameron had a famous victory last year, just over a year ago in the 2015 election. He confounded the pollsters then, and he saw off UKIP. UKIP only got one member of parliament mm -hmm. and uh, performed well under what most people expected. And it was, of course, before that election that Cameron made this pledge to hold the referendum, which was seen as a device to head off the appeal of the UK Independence Party. So Cameron, you know, was a, a star in the party. He was able to form a government purely from the Conservative Party without the Lib Dems just over a year ago. He's had perhaps bad luck. I mean, there's been the intensification of the Syrian migrant crisis, the country's perhaps been in a sense of drift, and the opponents have fought probably a more effective campaign. He, Cameron didn't have an ally in the Labour Party who's been very effective. Corbyn's been very reluctant to, to take a leading role. He hasn't been inspiring. So increasingly, Cameron has been beleaguered and isolated even in his own party. Hmm. Uh, this has opened up lots of discussion on referendums in general. Should he have promised one? Historians will probably say perhaps not. Uh, on the other hand, he won the election last year, and that was probably due at least in part to this promise. Uh, it looked early on as though Remain would probably have a fairly comfortable victory. Uh, Boris Johnson, however, tilted the balance. I think uh, Boris is an ebullient and ruthless politician, and we'll see where he goes from out. I don't think people like Nigel Farage would have done it on their own. I, I don't think he is seen as a, a leader of the whole country by most in the UK, but Boris Johnson has obvious leadership potential, and he, he badly wants it, and he is a, an effective communicator. So that helped, and it, it's made Cameron seem perhaps less effective in, in communicating. He's never been a great vision politician. Uh, he's been a sort of workaday, hard-working, hard um, you know, keep the issues simple without the big picture stuff, where, whereas Boris Johnson has appealed to a, a new way of thinking about the future of the UK. Where does this leave Scotland? 
That's a major issue, yes, absolutely. And they know that uh, the Scottish National Party, very strong almost, uh, you know, totally eclipsed all other parties there, that this is a big chance again for them to push for a new independence referendum. And you'd be a, a strong person to, to bet against them getting it this time. Uh, unfortunately, I speak as, you know, somebody who believes in the future of the United Kingdom, but it's, it's going to be another parallel issue very introducing a lot of uncertainty into British politics and the future of the nation. Uh, couldn't the UK Leave side see that coming? Like if we leave the European Union, then this is going to certainly uh, turn things upside down for Scotland as well? I'm sure they saw it, but they felt their stance and their proposed agenda was, was more important perhaps than raising the issue of Scottish independence again. I mean, the, the Scots won't find it easy to get in uh, on their own. Uh, it, you know, it will raise issues of uh, which may come as an unpleasant surprise to some in Scotland. It's not going to be uh, a sort of slam dunk for Scotland to get into the EU. Even, you know, when the UK gets out, there will be a lot of questions asked, and it may be that on balance they, they will turn that down. But I think voting for independence uh, will have a lot of appeal unless, Somebody like Boris Johnson, whoever succeeds Cameron, can really create an alternative path which seems promising, which seems viable, and, you know, the business community get behind it. And, and again, you could say that Scotland could suffer from a sort of scare scenario of going it alone. I mean, going it alone, they're going to lose a lot of benefits that they get from England, from the you know, prosperous south of England, London things like the National Health Service, uh, you know, the defense issue, which is going to serve. So it's, it's not necessarily um, a foregone conclusion they would vote that way, but certainly I think it's almost inevitable that there'll be another shot at it. Uh, where would it leave the UK if Scotland does leave? Does the whole Brexit then backfire, or is, does, does that, do they care? I'm not sure that they care at this stage. As I say, I think they were fighting on different issues. They were fighting to get control away from the EU. And, uh, you know, whether Scotland wants to reverse that, I think at the moment is seen as, as up to them. But, yeah, I mean, that's going to be an extensive debate about whether the Brexit people have, in fact, caused the breakup of the country. Uh, you know, we'd have to change the flag. You've got the, you've got the cross of St. Andrew in the Union Jack. Mm. Uh, you change passports and all sorts of things. What would the role of the Queen be uh, over Scotland? So that's a, another very contentious agenda. But, of course, we have to get over the exit uh, from the EU first. So it's going to be long and hard. And I, you know, I say again, I don't think uh, the EU, the other 27, are going to make it easy. They don't want to encourage copycats. How does this affect life in the rest of the world? For example, the U.S. presidential election, we've already seen Donald Trump jump on this and, and, and basically say, see, uh, mm -hmm. how does that change the world? Well, yes, he's saying the country is, you know, taking its, its uh, own uh, fate back in its own hands. Mm -hmm. I think, it, you know, it's different. Obviously, the U.S. is not locked into a multinational regional diplomatic economic organization where sovereignty has been diluted. The U.S. has never gone into an arrangement with that. Yes, they've got trade agreements with other countries, but I don't think it will be too hard for the opponents of Mr. Trump to point out the you know, extreme differences. The U.K. has been in this organization. It's, of course, grown a lot 
since the early 1970s. And there's no question we have had our sovereignty diluted because they uh, not only undertake common uh, a single market, which frees uh, movement of goods and products and people, but in, in areas like agriculture, fisheries, social policy, uh, even now foreign policy, the, and diplomatic services, the EU has gone uh, much more integrationist, much more, some would say, a sort of creating a federal government. And that, that's caused resentment. Uh, whereas the you know, the United States has, has not gone anywhere near that. They've, they've got their own boundaries, uh, their own borders. Uh, there's, there's never been any suggestion that they would merge their agriculture or any of these other economic areas with other countries. So the case is, might be made superficially by Mr. Trump, but I think it's easy to punch holes in it. Uh, you, you brought up borders. How will this change movement of people? Will it? Yes, I mean, I think there will be some... Uh, efforts to make it more difficult for British to travel in Europe and obviously we'll have to have a new passport we can't go on with something which says the European Union on it but depending on how you know the mood as the negotiations go on I think there will be seen to be advantage in making it relatively easy for for the Brits to continue to travel in Europe it makes sense for them to receive tourists uh, obviously some Brits will continue to want to work in Europe so the EU is not going to perhaps be overly um, bloody-minded towards the UK simply because they, they might want to isolate it. There are obviously interests in Europe in keeping contacts with Britain in making um, relatively easy for, for the Brits to visit. I mean, you've got a whole era of cheap airfares, a lot of British holiday, of course, in Spain and Italy and Greece and so on. So that would be nonsensical for uh, for Europe, for the EU to make it you know, desperately hard for, for the British to go there. But as for working, you know, the, the students who could go and work in Barcelona for a summer didn't ha just have to visit. I mean, those days are, are going to be over. Hmm. Uh, talk a little bit about the transition period. We've only got about a minute or so, a minute and a half left. Talk about the transition period in the next couple of years, how these negotiations will play out. Uh, will this be as drastic a change as everybody thinks it will be? It will be drastic, but nobody really knows. It's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. This is the first time it's happened. It may, of course, encourage other countries or the, the electorates of other countries to, to ask for referenda in their own countries. So uh, the EU negotiates laboriously. They've done it, of course, on you know free trade, on free trade agreements, on all sorts of uh, measures where they've had competence. So the EU is a a polished and you might say laborious negotiating machine. So it's going to be done over a long period. Uh, nobody knows exactly what points will be conceded to the UK. There are all sorts of issues about there are over one million British who are living in the EU and you know enjoy health benefits. Uh, they enjoy a better climate and those sorts of things. So all that will have to be sorted out. But it, it's going to be a precedent which will be viewed uh, very carefully by a lot of other countries. Will the EU be able to continue as a negotiating institution when what is, after all, one of the major economies, one of the major, if you might say, diplomatic heavyweights of the EU is withdrawing? So we're entering uncharted waters by this negotiation. And it's going to uh, increase 
the feeling that the EU maybe has had its day because all these negotiations will be going on in the glare of publicity. There will be regular briefings on who's won what, who's lost where, and it kind of undermines the unity message and narrative of Europe being together since the Second World War and creating a sort of new visionary uh, multinational regional institution. Do you think these discussions between the UK and the EU could just bog down and stagnate and drag on forever and leave leaving everybody in limbo for a long period of time? They could, um, but I think the EU will be keen to to close the chapter. And obviously, the new government in the UK, if it's uh, one assumes it's going to be headed by somebody who favoured leaving, are going to want to show that they can deliver too. I mean, it's not going to be politically uh, attractive to have a government which stores on this issue. If if the British voted for it to leave, then they'll expect their government to deliver it and and not um, drag their feet, uh, because that would be the worst of both worlds, perhaps. Peter Webster Harris has been with us, former British diplomat, now teaching international relations at Boston University. Paul, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you.